Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I am Lee Campbell-Taylor, the interim pastor here, and Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. Every uh, Monday, Jim Ingvalstad emails me asking what are the texts that I'm going to be preaching on in the coming uh, Sunday, because that's the text that he will use in his Bible study on Wednesday. I think that's a brilliant idea. So this past Monday, I got the email from Jim asking about today's text, and I blithely responded that, well, there's this passage in Luke that's never made much sense to me, and so I guess I'm supposed to dig into that. And I may have added that uh, biblical scholars are generally baffled by it, and uh, I know that I asked, um, so Jim, if you and uh, the Wednesday Bible study come up with any insights, please let me know. I never heard back from Jim. Instead, I spent the week squinting at this passage and waiting for the Holy Spirit to make rough places plain, and, well, the best I can do is invite us all to think through it together. There are a couple of things that are clear. At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is nearing the final stage of his journey to Jerusalem, to crucifixion and resurrection. As such, this is precious time for Jesus in his mission to teach his followers about the priorities of God's inbreaking reign. And especially in Luke, there may be no topic more crucial than the hazards of wealth. That's a major subject throughout the Bible, and Jesus talks more about caring for the poor than pretty much anything else, and it is a particular focus in the Gospel of Luke. I'll also mention that today's text comes in two sections. It begins with a parable, and that's the part that Jim and I and the biblical scholars I trust most are all scratching our heads over. And then after the parable, there are three sort of proverbs tacked on. And finally, it's worth noting that this immediately follows Jesus telling the crowd the story that we know as the prodigal son that favorite folktale of a young man who prematurely demands his inheritance and then goes off and squanders it. Broke and wretched, he eventually realizes that his best option is to go home and hire himself out to his family. But instead, of course, his father welcomes him with lavish forgiveness, despite his brother's moody condemnation. That story of squandering that's met by forgiveness immediately precedes today's text. Okay, this is Luke chapter 16, beginning with the first verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this manager was squandering his property. So the rich man summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough for manual labor and I am ashamed to beg. 
I have decided to do what? When I am dismissed as the manager, people will welcome me into their homes because of this. And so, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And the manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. And then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended him because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you see what I mean about that parable? But again, we're going to think through this together. Okay. Hmm. By opening with, there was a rich man who had a manager, Jesus is directing his audience's sympathies toward the manager. We know that because, especially in this gospel, a rich man, not going to be the hero. Furthermore, although the manager is said to have squandered, and that's the same vocabulary that's used for the prodigal son, even so, Jesus has been teaching all of us disciples to stand with the underdog. So maybe we get drawn into the manager's cooking the books caper as he ingratiates himself by reducing people's debts at the expense of the rich guy. Maybe we're supposed to have mixed feelings by the time the rich man finally pronounces judgment on his manager, saying, to borrow Will Willimon's interpretation, you, you, you genius, you. Which is confusing. But far more confusing is Jesus' summarizing exhortation. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. And then come Proverbs about being faithful of what we're given and reckoning with the fact that you cannot serve God and wealth, which is true, sure, and important, sure. <laughs> but we're still hung up on that parable. So to begin thinking about that, let's think about it through the lens of what we know to be true of God. That is always a good place to start when dealing with Scripture. We know that God is profligate in forgiveness. That's one lesson that the prodigal son story we just heard. God doesn't keep score. God erases debt. So is this parable 
something about God's gracious forgiveness. Well, while I want to like that idea, I have concerns. For one, the manager's shrewd erasure of debt is a quid pro quo scheme. I'll scratch your back here and now, guys, so that when I'm unemployed, you'll scratch mine. But thanks be to God, God does not deal in quid pro quo. Also, the forgiveness of debts in the parable is only partial. 50 jugs of olive oil instead of 100, as if God were to say, I'll forgive half your sin, but the other half, mm. Also, as I think about this text, I can't get past the description of the manager as dishonest, also translated unrighteous. So associating the manager's behavior with God just doesn't ultimately work for me. But let's give thanks for any reminder that what we know of God is God's forgiveness. Maybe we think about this text through the lens of what we know to be true of humankind. Now we're talking. In fact, when I said that Jim Ingvolstad never quite got back to me, that's not quite true because we were in a meeting together on Thursday night and Jim said that he had tried thinking about this text in connection with the recent student loan forgiveness plan. Now that is good Bible study, Jim. It really is because Jesus is speaking from first-hand knowledge of this world in which debt can cripple and curdle and curtail even hope, and where the shrewd application of money and influence can make all the difference. Like this story, politics is permeated by examples of shrewd usage of money and influence. The first thing I thought of with this parable was a 2016 presidential debate in which one candidate accused the other candidate of having paid less income tax than whatever the group was, and the accused candidate said, that makes me smart. I think that's what this parable might mean by shrewd. I also think of new revelations about uh, Mississippi's former governor misdirecting $90 million in welfare funds to personal investments and pet projects like a volleyball stadium. Now, nothing wrong with volleyball. Volleyball's great. But during that same time period, 98% of Mississippi's welfare applicants were turned down. So shrewdness can certainly be dishonest and unrighteous. But it doesn't have to be that. This week, you might have seen the New York Times published Jason DeParle's report that, quote, a comprehensive new analysis shows that child poverty has fallen 59% since 1993. I'm gonna repeat that. In the United States, over the past 29 years, child poverty has fallen 59%. Praise God. The article goes on. Child poverty has fallen in every state, and it has fallen by about the same degree among children who are white, black, Hispanic, and Asian, living with one parent or two, and in native or immigrant households. How? 
did this unprecedented, across the board, praise God, reduction in child poverty occur in an era of welfare reform? a movement codified in the Clinton administration over the vigorous protests of many Democratic leaders. Well, poor single mothers are the main beneficiaries of welfare, and that's something to be mindful of as abortion access becomes increasingly precarious. And the Times reports that these women are, quote, better able to find and hold jobs than many liberals expected. Over the past few decades, increased employment among civil, uh, single mothers has been one reason for the decline in child poverty. So it was beneficially shrewd of conservative policymakers to push for welfare reform. The Times further observes, with welfare less generous, Democrats, sometimes in alliance with Republicans, pushed for policies to help low-income workers. So it was beneficially shrewd of progressive policymakers to support working families. Now there are still over 20 million Americans categorized as poor, but were it not for the shrewd use of money and influence deployed by both sides of the political spectrum, there would be an additional 12 million children living in poverty right now. Perhaps the parable seeks to remind us of the beneficial power of money and influence. Finally, maybe we think about this text through the lens of what we know to be true about church. One thing you gotta admire about this manager guy, he doesn't mope, he doesn't dwell on the past, he doesn't wait for someone else to deal with the reality that confronts him, he sees a problem, and he starts working on it. I think that's what Jesus is noting when he remarks, the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Maybe we can think, then, of this parable as nudging us to get busy with what is required of us to tackle the challenges facing this generation. Maybe we, as individuals and as a community, need to be more shrewd when it comes to serving God's ongoing mission in this world that God so loves. I hope one of those approaches strikes you as fruitful, faithful way to think about this parable, because there's one thing more that I want to share. Some of us who get paid to think about these texts have been thinking that maybe Luke, who tells more parables than any other gospel, Luke, who shares the highest number of parables that are found in no other gospel, maybe Luke might actually be presenting the story of Jesus as a parable. On some recent Sunday, while exploring some other parable, we defined parables as odd little stories that seem to be about the ordinary, but are actually about way more. Well, okay, Jesus is an ordinary Jew, and he is way more. 
Parables are odd little stories characterized by extremity and extravagance. Okay, well, what is more extreme and extravagant than God sending God's only begotten Son for us? Parables are odd little stories that feature a surprising twist and reversal. Well, Jesus' crucifixion is quite a twist after his years as a rock star rabbi, and his resurrection mm, is the ultimate reversal. And parables are odd little stories designed to make us think. Could that be why this passage exists? Luke includes no tidy answer, no clear call to action. So maybe it's enough that we think about what we know to be true of God, forgiveness. That we think about what we know to be true about humankind. That we are capable of shrewdness which can tilt toward the dishonest and unrighteous or toward the beneficially impactful. And that we think about what the church needs to get busy doing to make the best of the mess this generation finds itself in. And if you think about nothing else, think about this. Jesus refers to us as children of light. This text doesn't tell us what exactly that means, but we can think about it. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L.org. There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us. Grace and peace to you.